Welcome film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, and let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome listeners to the Cinema Pathway podcast. I mentioned at the beginning of our last episode that we've had a run of guests who who wear or have worn multiple hats. And uh, we really aim to give a broad view of those different areas when it comes to filmmaking. Today, we're going to do a 180 and we're going to focus primarily on one area. Of course, when it comes to the craft of filmmaking, you can never really just talk about one specific area, but uh, we will try. So let's start by stating that this one position can go by two names. Uh, You've probably seen cinematographer and or director of photography. So today, I hope we can answer that age-old question of are they the same or are there differences? Uh, To help us do that, we are joined by a talented cinematographer. He is an award-winning motion picture artist with a wide range of experience, which I'm going to hold off on mentioning because I want to give him the opportunity to talk about those. I am pleased to welcome Laszlo Thomas Nador to the podcast. Laszlo, welcome. Thank you, Howie. I appreciate you uh, inviting me, and I so look forward to sharing my story with you guys. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a wild ride. So I'm very excited to kind of learn about the guests you've had on the show. And I, I, I what can I say? I'm overjoyed to be here. So one thing we've learned from our, our previous guests is uh, there's no blueprint or really clear pathway to working in the film industry. A lot of people start in different areas, but I don't think any of our guests have started their journey in a field that is as the polar opposite of filmmaking that you did. So take us on a journey from where you started at. What was your first college major? Yeah, that's interesting. So I was in pre-medicine and uh, I thought I was going to be a doctor cutting people open and uh, boy, was I wrong. Um, Anyway, that story kind of goes a little deeper. My parents were Hungarian immigrants and they wanted nothing, you know, better than the best for their kids. And so not really knowing what I wanted to do, uh, you know, I was kind of sent off to college to study something that was probably not attainable at the time. You know, it was a very expensive eight to 12 years of pretty heavy duty, you know, college and pre-med and then internships after that. And knowing my parents and kind of money they were making, I, I just didn't want to put them through that, you know. And so when I got to college, I um, I right away had to work to kind of start paying off those uh, student loans. And one of, the, one of the gigs I got was at their production studios. And that changed my life. Uh, for me, I never, well, I can't say I've never seen production equipment because what was very neat growing up with Hungarian immigrants is they documented everything. They, for them, they would they bought a Super 8 camera and didn't think anything of it. And every single event of my life was captured on film from the day I was born to the last event in high school. It was all captured by my parents on film. And uh, I didn't re- really think anything of this. I just thought, you know, all parents kind of, you know, shoot their families and shoot all events. And, and you know, it's kind of normal standard. But little did I know that not a lot of people shoot their lives on film. And uh, one one day I received a box and the box had 20, 30 of these cool little, you know, daylight load, eight millimeter and high eight cartridges. <clears throat> and uh, at that point I had my, I was in production, I had a production company, so I decided to transfer. And, and that job, that process, that journey is really, I think, why I'm still here today. I was kind of born naturally to be a filmmaker. I didn't 
study or quite honestly, I don't even look at other directors of photography or directors. I enjoy film. I enjoy storytelling. I enjoy the immersion of being into a quality production that I don't have to stop and worry about technical problems or things that prevent you from enjoying that story. And that's been the path that I've taken my entire life was, you know, hardworking, struggling parents taught me how to hard work hard and, 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 you know, do everything with my hands. And so, uh, you know, my father was a mechanic. And so, you know, I grew up as a grease monkey's son. I, I can put an engine together and fix just about any mechanical situation you throw at me. And then they also ended up kind of having rental units later in life. And I became the maintenance man on that. So, you know, all around practical can pretty much build, uh, design and fix everything. Now I'm telling you guys all this because it's how I became a successful production company. I'm going to go a little bit further back. So my first position after that gig I got in college was working for this really very small town um, artist. His name was and still is one of my best friends. I just talked to him last week, Ron Zimmerman, my mentor. Um, he was, in my opinion, one of the neat writer directors in the market, small market I grew up in Texas. Uh, there was one production company who was shooting all the national uh, work and then a few little you know, documentary artists. And uh, they posted a job one day at this documentary filmmaking company. And I got it. And um, it was a sophomore year at this point, going all summer on these amazing documentary trips around the country and getting paid a pretty good you know, what I thought at that point in college was pretty good money. And um, a little more than beer money. It was, you know, I, I kind of remember being paid somewhere around, you know, $250, $300 a day in college. Um, and this, this was back in the early days, right? So for me, I was like, you know, that, that feels pretty good. I'll, I'll keep doing this. And not only did I keep doing it, but I kind of got addicted. I got addicted to the lifestyle. I got, I, I got a little bit, um, Wow, I, I got to say, like, I kind of abstained from all my college fraternity events so I can go on production in my, in my junior year. And, uh, and honestly, I didn't even finish college. I actually got out um, before my senior year. The reason I got out was not related to that. I was in a terrible car accident while I was in college and I couldn't go, afford to go back. But that event um, changed my life and I went right into the industry after that. So it's, uh, as we call it, kismet. That you were in the right place at the right time, that the stars aligned. Something, you know, so you were in Texas around the time. You were there right around the time of uh, when Robert Rodriguez was uh, making El Mariachi. You know, that was kind of a big, in the local film community down there, that was a big deal, even though nobody knew of it outside of that until much later. Yeah, no, uh, Robert is definitely one of our, you know, big celebrity names that everybody knew. Um, and he definitely put Texas on the map. We had a few others too, you know, Ava Longoria was kind of a girl from Texas. And we actually had a project kind of developing with her. It was a beautiful Christmas story we were going to do, but never really developed. But yeah, we have, a, you know, Texas actually has some really interesting uh, quality filmmakers who like to live there. Like I loved working there. You know, being from Texas and starting my career in Texas, there was no reference, right? So, you know, there was, it was like, you know, not being able to work in the different markets. And so when you start in one market, that's your reference. And so I thought everything I was doing was normal and you know what all filmmakers were doing but my process started very very simple and you know for me it was all about seeking a better quality 
of production. So for me, the first gig I had at that production company was editing. I was sitting, um, you know, pretty much editing documentaries on these, it was 16 millimeter flatbed, you know, where we were actually kind of splicing film. And then we went into three quarter uh, inch machine to machine editing. I got pretty serious into the editing to the point where I was an online editor. And back then online editors were, um, we were like astronauts. Like we would have to control multiple machines with a computer to the point where you would have to roll sometimes two, three playback machines, all playing back shots that you've marked. And those, those would all play back and create an effect while they all rolled and then recorded. Um, some of these suites that I ran looked like something out of a spaceship or when you walk into like an airplane cockpit, it was gadgets, computers, and know-how like we don't do anymore. And, and to me, I was kind of raised in that ridiculous detail-oriented industry when everything was, you had to learn it from somebody. And it wasn't just Google and it wasn't just hours. And sometimes it was months and years before you were able to comfortably sit with a paying client and not be worried or have the confidence you needed to to pull off the job. It makes me think of, you know, the early, early, early days of, of VCR, VHS, with the two VHS editing system, and uh, what you describe as kind of that system on steroids. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what's really neat is in my lifetime, I've seen it go from literally the flatbed film. We've gone through every single editing, editing machine format. Um, and I'm still cutting away on my, you know, my DaVinci and my Premiere Pro on a little simple, you know, computer. But holy crap, have I seen post-production. I mean, it's been leaps and bounds, like crazy stuff. But, you know, I'm, I'm very, I appreciate seeing it all and kind of being able to know, you know, all the things that worked, all the things that didn't work, processes that, you know, made things better. Um, you know, I was actually a smoke artist at some point, which is a very high-end finishing machine that came in uh, right after film transfers were starting to go away. And we had to do everything. We had to literally do all the editing, the finishing, and the color in addition to all the effects. So at one point in my career, I was literally, you know, on one system finishing national ads, films, and pretty much anything that came in the door at a level that I just I just don't see anymore. So it sounds like you were well on your way to a career in editing. What made you switch to uh, camera and cinematography? So kind of like I started this conversation, I'm an overachiever, and for me, like quality has been has driven my life. Everything I everything I want to be part of has to be at the utmost best, or else I'm just not satisfied. And it's just a weird personality I have, but I am kind of a perfectionist, I guess is, is the best word. And so working with the footage that I had really didn't work for me, honestly. It was kind of, you know, it was documentary lifestyle. Anybody can shoot it. It was all just, you know, your, your pretty basic news kind of looking footage. Um, in addition to the subject matter I was working on was a little depressing. We were chasing criminals around the country trying to get them in jail. And this was the kind of work that was popular at the time. There are documentary reality TV shows that would follow, you know, bad guys and put them in jail. Um, you know, several you guys are familiar with, but um, I think I worked for just about all of them. The content, the quality made me move on to advertising. And I wanted to be in the, um, a little bit more of an elite uh, group. Uh, I wanted to kind of work with a stronger creative um idea 
going into the production. And so I was very lucky to be hired at a big general market advertising agency right after I got my kind of feet wet in, you know, documentary work. And that, that changed everything in my life that, that showed me the quality that I knew was, was out there. And it actually taught me how to achieve that quality from step one, all the way to the final step, literally from the moment the client walked in the door with an idea, I was the agency producer. I was able to follow the idea from the creative director who would sit there for days and come up with one of the, some of the best ideas. And then we would move over to the creative department and, and we would get together with the writers and the art department. And man, what a wonderful process to be able to see nothing go to something and repeatedly, like step and repeat hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times at a high level. And that's kind of what gave me the idea to, to take this now to the rest of the agencies in my market, because I was pretty popular at that time. I was getting noticed and my partners were like, you know, they were just kept getting, giving me raises and just giving me bonuses. <laughs> that was the time I realized that, you know, there's nothing like this in the market I was in at the time. We, we had bought the only Avid and uh, all the rest of my friends were like, hey, yeah, can we get a little bit of that service as well? And so that was, that was the beginning of uh, a pretty big step for me. So then when did you make the move to camera or did someone move you to camera? I first wanted to, at that point, I probably were on a couple hundred commercials working with some of the best directors and cinematographers and DPs in the industry on the branding side. You know, back then, like, I mean, the, the budgets were, we would do a commercial for $100,000 where we, I can't get a film budget for 100000 these days, you know? And so you can imagine the kind of quality we would pour into a, a, a campaign, right? It was a week of production and, you know, a couple weeks of post-production. So um, to be able to focus on quality for a very long period of time allowed me to, to build this quality shop. And when you start producing quality, the quality just walks in the door because it's a calling card. And, and, and one of the coolest things I was able to do is after I had those eight years with the advertising agency, I was able to go to my partners one day and said, guys, you know, I'm, I'm ready to grow. I'd like to service you and everybody else in town. And uh, it was one of those beautiful separations that they were, they were very proud of the achievements. I left them with a facility that was still probably the best one in that market. And I was able to open my first studio that was called Rain. Um, it was the beginning of Laszlo Rain, which is a small boutique. But at that point, I had two or three other general market agencies. And that's when I realized that I had a, a knack for doing what I do. I was an artist. You know, I was, I was just basically an, an editor who now was starting to shoot, but I had the experience of producing the entire job as an agency producer. And once people realized I was able to do that, I was just able to go and just and pick and choose. But it wasn't what I wanted to do. I still wanted to go back to why I was not happy with the footage, which is shoot. But obviously at that point, you can't just pick up a film camera and, and have a production. It's, it, you know, you had to go through years and years of apprenticeship, training, studying, practicing, failing, 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 and failing. And I was able to do that on the client's budget. I was very, very fortunate. I was smart though. Like I was a businessman, right? So I realized that this concept is probably a little bigger than me. I'm going to bring in Mr. You know, Mr. Wonderful to shoot it, but I'm writing everything down. I'm studying everything he's doing. So then the next one, I may not have to bring in Mr. Wonderful. I'll bring in 
Mr. So-so, right? And so that was my process. I kept hiring the, the best in the industry. My budgets would allow it until I got to the point where I was confident enough to shoot that commercial. Now, for many, many years, while I was director DP, it was a very interesting combination at the time. Very few people did it. I was in charge of the creative process. Once my, my agency handed me the script or the storyboards, it was mine. And that's where I wanted to be. I, I had full control of the art, full control of the message, right? And so, wow, what a wonderful thing. And that's where I've been pretty much for my entire career since then. And I realized that if you can get through the grind of A, putting up with the time it requires to study those things professionally and be competitive, then you know what? You could step up to that position and just make it yourself. You're the producer, you're the production company, you're your own director and you're shooting your own work. <laughs> Who's gonna say anything at this point, right? And when it's good and you're winning awards every year, just shut up and <laughs> let me do my thing, right? And that's that's what happened, Good uh, goodness. And so my little studio was small. I'd say, you know, we had 20, 30 productions a year. It was a couple of guys I worked with, but really great CGI guys. Back then animation was big and we had, you know, everything from 3D to whatever required to do fancy graphics and flying, you know. Um, it was There was just a lot of eye candy back in the work, uh, back in those days. Um, we we um we found out one day that our studio got flooded we had a lot of like rain in south texas and one one morning i showed up and there was two feet of water in my studio and so i'm calling this this the leasing company i'm like hey you know would you come clean up your mess because you just destroyed everything in my studio and they're like you know what we're just gonna raise your rent and so at that point, again, being a smart, you know, kind of a scrapper and a person who fights for my right to be a business, I said, well, you know what, I'll tell you what, my lease is over in two months. You can kiss this company goodbye. We're going to we're gonna open a bigger studio down the street from this one. And so <laughs> we went from a 5,000 square feet studio to a five acre ranch in six months. And that was the icing on the cake. When I opened this what everyone called small Lucas Studios. It was the most amazing place that you can ever see and be and work in. Uh, not only did we have the space to have whatever production we wanted to, we had the privacy. We had five acres. Like you, you could come in my front gates and I would lose sight of you. That's how big this place was, right? Um, you could have, we shot a several, several productions there, but I shot a full feature film. We had the entire company set up on the campus where nobody got in each other's way, but entire grip department, the lighting department, the art department, they were all on my campus working. And to me, that, that was the climax of my efforts was, you know, once, once I got to this stage, like it doesn't get any better when you have full control of the entire production, your name is on the building. You are the executive producer because you you dragged the project in. You are in charge of the creative and you get to do what you know, basically finish the story however you like to with the director, right? And that was the model that I finally ended up with before the recession and before we came to Florida. And um it was wonderful because it was the the branding work was on fire like we had every account in the county including every utility every bank and then we had valero energy <laughs> which is by far the proudest client we are you know 
friends, this creative team that I spent half my career with are like some of the most amazing uh, just collaborators I've ever had a chance to work with. They were the top creative team at that agency that I was talking about that went under. And they were like the top of the market. These guys had all the accounts. And the creative director and his favorite art department said, you know what, we're not going to go away. We're just going to go over to Laszlo's place, move in, and we're going to continue to do what we're doing. And you got to see, it was amazing. So I attracted two or three creative teams at that point, and we became a hybrid. There was no agency. There was no production companies. They're all out of business or going out of business, right? And so all these clients we were servicing who loved our work decided to call me back and said, Laz, you know, we don't have an agency anymore, but, you know, would you mind servicing us still? And I was like, no problem. I'll be on that in a heartbeat. And sure enough, like, you know, next next round of bids, we were like, you know, we were killing it. We were providing the same services, the same creatives, the same writing, the same ideas for the same budget. Nothing changed, you know? That sounds like... Uh just pretty amazing time. Very interesting story, you know, starting of your journey. And we're going to dig more into your journey and, you know, how you evolved as a cinematographer uh, right after this break. But before that, we would like to give a very special thank you to the M2 Productions who are graciously hosting today for this recording. This is Howard Brand with the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. And we are back. Today, I am joined by cinematographer Laszlo Thomas Nador. Okay, Laszlo, I teased this at the beginning of the show. What is the difference between a cinematographer and a director of photography? You know, to me, there's no difference. Um, the difference is the format. Uh, when you're a cinematographer, you're shooting for the cinema. That's the way it's always traditionally been. And that's where the name came from. We were watching everything that we do on the widescreen before all these other crazy small screens came out. And the cinematographer's name it comes from from basically the years of cinema and it is as as good and honored and you know however you want to use it i use those two names the right way when i'm shooting something for a commercial or i'm shooting something for television i am the director of photography because i am in charge of the entire photography like you know like like it says when i'm shooting something for a film that is going to be basically distributed on cinema screens or in theaters, then I would prefer the cinematographer's title. What about short films or student films? It depends where it goes again. <laughs> so um, typically those go going these days to social and to other formats and they don't really show up on the big screen. So again, as a trained professional who I've, I've always followed the right way, the way Hollywood has always kind of laid it out, I would say I'd be a DP on that as well. Okay. Thank you for uh, definition. I never... Now it makes complete sense for that for those. So whether someone is a cinematographer or a, a DP, yes, your your camera is the base, but you really have to work with all these different elements, all these just different departments beyond the camera. You have to know a lot more than just how to operate a camera. Wow. The camera. The camera is like my right arm. So just just so you guys know, like I I don't go anywhere without a way to record everything. It's just been a way my parents taught me to to try to capture as many beautiful moments of life as you can so you can share it with everybody, including your family and these days with the whole world. So cameras and capturing events are the number one first step if you're going to be a, a, a cinematographer, right? Because you got to learn how to see things through a lens. And um, in different lenses, different cameras, they all bring different, you know, attributes and different 
views and all kinds of different, you know, quality. And so I, I kind of been going uh, with, with the formats of the time. So when I started out, you know, my parents handed me Super 8 and 8. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to go back that far. Let me just start with 16. And so I bought a really nice daylight load hand wound. Uh, it's a made by Bell and Howell. It's called a DR70. Some people call it a Filmo. It has a, a small, medium, and wide lens on it, on a turret. Shot my entire kid's life on it. It was always next to me. It was always loaded. It was always in the car. Never needed batteries. So guys, take my advice here. You know, why are you going to rely on a cam- camera that's at some point going to be outdated? And I've been through all of them, honestly. I've been through, I started with film, right? And then today we're in digital servers on a hard drive somewhere you can't touch anymore, right? At the end of the day, I still prefer using something that requires no maintenance that I could shoot anywhere at any time. Um, and, you know, for me, as beautiful as it can be. So, you know, for me, there's lots of different ways to do that. But at the end of the day, we start with a camera and that camera progresses to better cameras, better situations, you know, um, more expensive lenses. You get better crew and that process just expands because you want to get better as a filmmaker, as, as the eyes to the story. It is so important to be a master at everything that happens to the picture. I mean, we're talking about, you know, it is a vast sea of knowledge from framing, composition, lighting, uh, picking your crew, um, the technical aspects of knowing everything about every piece of equipment, um, you know, knowing how to um, be a, a manager of people, um, oftentimes a counselor to the people that, you know, sometimes fall during the day um and uh, and a supporter to your director you know for me the director's job is insane uh, they are non-stop from get to go and you know if i can support them during the production process they get a little bit of load off their shoulders and they get to rely on somebody that that is you know there to do what they're supposed to yeah you mentioned uh lighting and you know lighting very important i i jokingly say that uh, i'm never shooting outside Again, because sun never wants to cooperate no matter what you do. Uh, but aside from lighting, there's a whole bunch of other moving pieces, things on the set, things happening that influence what you shoot. Can you talk about some of those things? Man, there's, there's so much. It depends on what I'm shooting. But, you know, if it's, if it's a production that is planned, which is my preference, we will talk about everything prior to showing up and shooting. And th- that's my preference because it kind of goes back to the quality again. If, if I can have input, on every single thing that is seen by the audience, it's going to be great. It's going to be, it's, it's going to have all the polish that everyone's expecting it to, right? But on the other hand, we have a lot of work now because of the so many different formats where there's no prep, there's no explanation, and you just have to go in ready to go. And these days, that is more often, honestly. I love it, honestly. It makes me a stronger person problem solver and i thrive on challenges like for me when there's a room full of people scratching their head i'll be the first person to come up with a a wise effective solution that is within time and budget because that's what i do all day and you know i love my producers my producers love me and this is goes back to some of those accounts i've serviced like you know who services a commercial account for 12 years i do because you know i did it right took care of my clients they loved me they didn't want to go anywhere else and you know that's that's the way you do things if you if you know people come back and keep working with you yeah we uh i was on a short film once and just budget didn't allow for like a wardrobe supervisor so told the actors you know bring 
you know, your own wardrobe. And one of them showed up in a green shirt. And we were like, oh, we didn't even think about that. You know, shooting a green shirt on someone. But, you know, do you ever have to explain to a director, you know, director wants something to look a certain way, but either the light doesn't pick up on it right or it's reflecting or it's interfering with the shot. And, and I think a lot of that comes down to diplomacy and tact. Yes, absolutely. See, I've been very fortunate. I don't know if it's fortune or just my, you know, just the way it's kind of laid out, but all of my features have been with first time directors, except for the last one. Um, and no, I'm sorry. No, I, I did something with Nick Cannon in Jamaica. And he is, and that was his first feature directorial debut, but Nick's, Nick's already got lots of experience. But it is so fun for me to work with first-time directors because they lean on me heavily, like everything we're talking about. They don't know how, they don't know anything about the setups. They don't know anything about the process. And with my experience, I'm able to kind of help them through the day and help them through the project and help them get quality money shots. They're always very complimentary when they're first-time directors. You know, I just finished something with... Um, with somebody I'm very proud of who, who who's directed other things and you know compliments keep coming and again it goes back to that quality that until it looks like it should I say you know because we have a lot of you know we have a lot of pre concepts oftentimes the director the this department we all come and come in with a vision right and and normally the cinematographer's vision is what gets shot and so that's why i'm big on storyboards i'm big on diagrams i'm big on lighting setups i'm big on producing as much detail as i can share with my crew before we show up and do it but if we can't howie i am like i lean heavily on composition and even if i don't have lighting there's lighting uh, because I won't be able to be happy with a shot if it's flat. So we were kind of talking about lighting. And, and for me, it's, it is one of the big drawers in my toolbox. I have a lot of drawers still that I like to use in the toolbox. And that's kind of, you know, one of the things I, I still promote for my young filmmakers and young cinematographers is, is, yeah, it's okay to have, you know, a drawer that you like, but it's better to have five or six drawers that you know how to use when you need them. And so, yeah, and, and for me, the lighting, whether it's simple or, or complicated, it's always there. I'm, you know, for me, I, I couldn't shoot anything without an eye light. You know, I'm looking at you, Howie, and you got a beautiful light in the middle of your eyes right now. Thank you. I, I have to see that to, to understand you and, and talk to your soul, right? And so for me, like people who don't bring just general lighting are kind of miss, missing a little bit of the, of the quality step to filmmaking. It doesn't have to be complicated these days. Our cameras are so sensitive that, you know, I'm doing a lot of negative fill now, which is the opposite of lighting. I'm taking light out because there's so much light in the ambient space that I could cut that uh, with a flag and still give you a nice ratio that that wraps around your face, you know? Do you have kind of like your a gaffer, a key grip that you know and rely on and kind of always work with? Or do you find yourself having to teach the ones you end up with on set? So, yeah, I'm sorry to say that, you know, some of my fondest are no longer with us, uh, but I do have uh, somebody that I, I highly admire and he lives in Texas still, and he's shot most of my work with me. His name is Homer, and uh, he would come to my productions in a heartbeat if the budget allowed. <laughs> but yeah, no, I have lots of great artists and and you know quality filmmakers around the country I've worked with who yeah they're they're just you know beautiful people who I've had great experiences with that I would 
call in a heartbeat or you know send them to my producer's uh, wish list. Not light a little more so, but like light sound and script supervising always seem to be at the bottom of the priority list. You know, again, it's like, it's like let's just get grab a camera and shoot. It is, but I think those those times are going to change. You guys are about to see it come back because everything's a cycle, right? And I've been in this industry long enough to see these crazy cycles come and go. You've seen fads, you've seen styles, and I can list a few. Like 3D, you know, that was good for five years. Are you, do you see any, I mean, this happens a lot in this industry, in every industry. It's, it's bright, smart people come up with ideas. And if there's a producer behind that idea, it's going to get produced, whether it's lasts or not, right? Uh, but I have always been a kind of traditionalist when it comes to storytelling. And that is, I want my stories to last for generations. I don't really want to have an effect in my piece that is dated, you know, or colors or performances or anything that makes me kind of, uh, you know, feel that it's not going to be enjoyed by general audiences down the road. And when you look at classic projects and films and things that will always be watched that's the that's the general kind of formula is you know less is more when it comes to when it comes to narrative Obviously. unless you're james cameron and then you, then you need a blue planet it's funny you mentioned 3d when my wife and i bought our first house back in 2010 we bought a way overpriced samsung 3d tv with the glasses and if i had a nickel for every time we used the glasses i would be broke never used them once so yeah, I, you said five years. I don't even think it was that long. Speaking about like, you do a lot of mentoring is good to hear. So besides having a good eye, what makes a good DP or cinematographer? Or what should somebody who wants to go into that area, learn and, and be good at? You know, I don't know if there's anything special. Look at me. I, mean, I have no training. I've got immigrant parents who never ever really honestly taught me how to shoot anything. They just did. And, and that's, that's what they passed along. So for me, it's being um, disciplined a detail oriented, you know, person who likes to kind of overachieve because these days the competition is thick and, you know, you know, if you've got an eye for framing, as soon as you pick up a camera, it should be natural. You know, when you look at light, there should be something that sparkles something inside of you. When you see a sunrise and a sunset, those are special moments that talk to me. And, you know, that's not training that I got. That's just, I love light. I, I love to see what light does on a person, on a on an object. I like to see it reflected. I don't say, I don't think there's a rule or any path. I'd say you, you just, you know, you, you do what you think you want to do. And if it's a dream, if it's something you love, it's going to happen. Passion oftentimes drives people to their success. And it, it drove me to my dreams. Honestly, I touched and felt them for many, many years. I, I, I lived the dream and I'm still living it. You know, I'm kind of at the later, later days of my career, but I'm doing the next stage for my for my kids and for the next generation and that's to me is very important to leave um the beautiful industry that i had a chance to grow up in and 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 which kind of showed me the ropes that's what i would like to leave behind to the next generation the, the way you talk about how you know you love sunrise sunsets and all that my my wife is a photographer so shout out to jennifer and she is the exact same way. You know, even right now, she's taking a picture of a sunset every day because she wants to make a book, 365 sunsets. And everyone's like, why do you just keep posting the same picture? And she has to explain every time why they're still, but yeah, like she's just captivated by it. And she just, she sees things completely different than the way uh, I do. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a trait 
let me give you a great example. Like I live, I go to uh, Bikram Yoga two or three times a week and I, I take 595 and I take that little loop off to US1, which is it faces east and then it loops around west and then it goes south, right? And it's right in the landing path of one of the, of one of the plane, plane, you know, uh, landing um, paths. And so several times I'm driving and I've got my, my camera on, you know, basically mounted on my dashboard. I'm just waiting for this plane to come when I hit that turn because it's going to be the most beautiful shot you'll ever see, which is the front of the plane. And as I'm turning, it's the side of the plane and the back of the plane and then the plane leaving without any effort. It's it's a no-brainer. And those are the things I find all day long. And that's a cinema. You know, we're, we're thinking about shots all day long. We're thinking about how to make them better. And then when when you get us on set, look out. Because when you give us tools and a camera and a bunch of beautiful professionals, it is a journey that, you know, we hope to uh, impress the world with every time we get on set. So, I, you know, something you've touched on a couple of times that I, I want to... Uh ask, how big of an impact has the move from film to digital had on DP and cinematographers? I would say major. It's changed the game uh, from my perspective. Um, I feel that film teaches you how to work differently. It's a, it's a little bit more of a slower process because you really have to think about what you're doing before you show up on set. And that, that's, that's the education I got. And honestly, I still feel we should do that with some of our digital projects. Um, I, I feel that we do rush through pre-pro oftentimes to get to the final means and then everybody's wondering why things look so mediocre. Well, that's why, because we didn't take the time to polish the pre-pro and get everything beautifully designed, planned, articulated, uh, you know, basically everybody's input that is ba basically hired as a professional. I, re I remember productions where we would, you know, we would start with a big pre-pro meeting with every head of every department. And then we would have a discussion about the project. And then we would have another pre-pro meeting. And before you know it, everything was discussed and you'd show up on set and there's no surprises. Everybody was executing. And that's how you get something done that you, that you pre-visualize. When you walk into something that is reality kind of documentary lifestyle, it's kind of a different set of rules, you know? Then you just have to have experience and know that, okay, the light, when it's high noon, you definitely got to cover your talent if you're outside. You know, if it's low light, you know, you use you use that as backlight. Um, you know, it's it's there's all kinds of rules and, and things to do as a cinematographer, depending on the, the situation you're in. But, you know, we like to control everything because that's when it's going to look the best. And I feel... We're doing that on the back end now. You know, fix it in post has become a pretty popular saying. And honestly, I'm I'm a person who honestly can tell you what you can fix in post and what you can't fix in post. You can't fix, um, you know, some things that are shot on film and post. And here's the truth to this. My entire career, uh, since I stopped shooting film regularly, the number one request I have from clients who see my work is, we would like it to look like film, Laszlo. And so my entire post-film career, <laughs> this has been hilarious, is like I, I do nothing different than replace the camera body now. I use all the same equipment I shot my films with, and that's how it looks like film. And I use the exact same discipline that I shoot film. And that's it. There's nothing different. And so oftentimes when I see somebody come to me and say, how come you're shooting at 24, Laszlo? And I'm like, what are you shooting at? And they're like, well, we shoot everything at 30. I'm like, well, there you go. That's going to look like news or something that's out of a reality TV show. But little things like that, if you don't know that, you don't know how to, uh, you know, you don't know how to create a ratio of lighting, 
it's going to be flat and it's going to look like something from the news. So you can make digital look like film, but you got to know how to shoot film to learn how to shoot digital to look like film. Great. We're going to get a little bit deeper into how you do that and you know how you apply the craft. But before that, we would like to thank two of our partners that helped make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who's been a mainstay of the film industry since 1968, providing equipment, support, and training. And ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment. This is Howard Brand. You're listening to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. And we are back. Laszlo, let's talk about your process. So a producer or director wants to hire you. You do your negotiating back and forth. You agree, you're hired. What comes next? Plans. I'm big time into, you know, breakdown. So I, I'm, I'm one of those artists who like to see, you know, first thing is the script. I'll go through the script. And, you know, while I'm reading the script, I'm already visualizing kind of how I see things unfolding. Oftentimes, I get some kind of visual references from the director. Like a lookbook or something? Look book or references to other films or, you know, just, just things that they liked as they were coming up with their idea and their creative. Right. And so, uh, but oftentimes they don't. And so, uh, you know, I respect everything they come up with, but at the end of the day, there's two things I look at strongly, the script and the budget, because these days it's very rare that they hire you and say, Hey, yeah, just give me a budget. Right. These days they hire you with a budget in mind and almost everything has to kind of be backed out. So by doing that, it's incredible planning, like everything from, so at this point I'm waiting for my locations, right? So for me, everything is based on a location. That's how I start my process is I have to see a physical space so I know what I'm doing. And the physical space can be anything. I could make it look like money in a bathroom. It doesn't matter. You give me your physical space, time to think about it, let me know who my team is and away we go. The team that I work with consistently when I'm planning these things, there's, you know, there's my camera team, obviously, and that really depends on how big we are, right? If it's single camera, that's pretty small. It's a first and a second. And then I, I love to operate my own shot. So unless it's multi-camera, I'm on camera. If it's multi-camera, I'm by a monitor and I'm directing all the cameras. So first and foremost, you know, is my camera team. I would probably not go into battle with strangers on my camera team. These are all people that I love and know, respect, and they know me. They know my style. They know how furious I am, how fast I like to work. Coming out of Texas, I thought I was just normal with my setups. Uh, like I thought every cinematographer can do 65 a day, but I found out that's not the case. Um, when I say 65, I set a record in Texas on a multi-camera shoot day on one of my features. It was downtown in front of the Alamo. And I remember Brian, the director, looking over at me that day. And um, we just could not believe what we, what we executed that day. We didn't even know, but we never stopped. Like from the day we got off, you know, from the morning we started our, our first shot, we never stopped running, chasing, shooting. It was action scenes for the entire day. So 65 camera setups, that's, that's, I'm just giving you an example. Normally I'm about 35, 40 on a busy day, right? So I show up down here in Florida and um, there's a company that has a few hundred commercials lined up already. They're ready to go into production. This is the as seen on TV folks who 
took over all the advertising that the agencies lost. It all went to direct retail, right? I have definitely never bought anything from the As Seen on TV store. But regardless, it was a massive sales force uh, selling machine that I kind of ran into here. And it was like the first client who called me after I relocated, um, after they saw my my branding work and they, they wanted me to be part of it. And so they called me and I walk into a production office and it's like, you know, just wall of of jobs. You know, how do you start something like that? Well, you, you need a team. And so that was a little different because they kind of had their team. And so I kind of came in and kind of did some training and we, we got it done. But but at the end of the day, for me, art department is also a big part of my world. Um, depending on the, the level of the project, you know, for me, everything from production designer, if the place does not exist, like if there's not a location that's ready, you know, I have to have an art department go in and make it look like the concept. Um, or or we have to live with the way the location looks, one or the other. And normally we don't go into a location ready. It always requires moving, setting, dressing, painting oftentimes or creating things, right? And so I, you know, for me, the art department is huge. My vanities, you know, makeup and wardrobe, man, priceless. You know, for me, it's it's a huge tool in my box. Uh, you know, I, I think a little differently. I am I come across as the director DP. And so my job has always been the leader of the creative. So I've been very fortunate not to have to deal with a director most of my career. I was the director and the DP. And so it's really efficient and fast when you don't have to collaborate with that second person on set. That's when I had, you know, my funnest days and most control over everything. But, you know, first AD, I, I would not go into battle without my first it was like the person that I relied on heavily who could get my day done. And anytime I had a meltdown, I could just look over and she would handle it. And I say she, I've had he's and she's, but the she's get it done. Having, a, having been a first AD, I'm still trying to wrap my head around 65 setups in a day. There, there you go. So anyway, it, amazing, but you know, I'm very proud of it. And they still keep talking about it. This was probably eight, 10 years ago. Um, what else? So for me, you know, the planning is huge. Like I will leave my pre-pro with lists of details. Like, so for me, after locations, once I see locations, then start the breakdowns, right? So it's everything from, I like to, you know, if time permits and budget allows, I would like to show my director all the camera setups on paper in a diagram. I want to show her where the talent is, where the walls are, where the lighting is, where the camera is, where the staging is. I want to show her where I would like for them to come in and leave the set from. I want full control of the set so that I could do my job efficiently and professionally. Do you draw those or yes. is there so you just hand draw? I use software. Now, now software is faster. But back in the day, we used to draw. It doesn't matter, honestly. I, I, it doesn't matter as long as there's a plan and everybody gets it. You know, it, it could be stick figures. It right. Not matter. an endorsement, but which uh, what software do you use? So uh, our, there's a couple of them out there, but the last one is... Um, it's kind kind of hidden deep, but you know, Storybook Quick is one I used to use. But the one I'm using for free now, if you guys want to check it out, it came with with some of my LED remote. It's called Sidus Link, and it's actually really nice. It's it's pretty deep in there. A lot of people don't use it, but these days there's so many free apps out there. You know, find one that you're happy with and just just keep it handy. I spent 15 years working in the federal government and everything is PowerPoint. The federal government that I've used PowerPoint for diagrams because just do shapes and you could do it and move it around and you can just duplicate the slide, move things around a little bit. It's it's pretty efficient. So, you know, once once there's a plan, the plan basically provides the details that the producer needs from me. You know, as a department head, 
I bring the most amount of gear to the set. Between my cameras and my lighting, they, you know, it's it's a lot of stuff. And so you have to have your conversations with your with your gaffers. You have to have your conversation with your keys. You have to have your conversations with your, pretty much everybody, right? Now, I, I don't like to provide all the departments, you know, details, but I do provide my department's details from camera and all the lighting. Anything that I'm in control of, you will get on a list from me when it's being used, how it's being used. If I don't need it, you can send it back to the rental house if you want to save that day. So you will get a full breakdown of every detail um, that is involved in a production for my for my projects. You talked about, you know, just something like you were born to do, Trace. You know, when you, when you talk about lighting, do you know or have a, I'm sure you have a good idea, you know, what temperature you want, but... Are you ever perfect? You know, does it still take time to adjust once you actually get there? I'll be honest with you. I I just about every time I come off the truck, it's my first setup is the one we go with these days. Um, I've been very lucky to know exactly what I want going in. I focus on that so that we could spend more time on the quality and not worry about what the DP wants at the beginning of the day, you know? So um, I tell all my producers and ADs, you know, if it's a basic setup, you know, give me 30 minutes to load in, 30 minutes to set up, and away we go. That's yeah. that's just how we do it all day long, every day for the last 20-something years, you know? And, and it's funny that you have the most gear. My first ever PA gig on an indie indie feature you're told before pl you know do not touch cameras gear within the first hour the ac asked me hey can you go grab our, our lens box i thought i was being punked i'm like okay are you hazing me and that is like no no it's it's okay i'm like okay just want to be clear you want me the pa to get your lens case yeah okay yeah you know we're not like that we're insured once we get on the set honestly you you could do anything you want we just don't want to be looking for our stuff when we need it for setup but you know when we're all on set you know we're all one big happy family and i enjoy those productions the most because on narratives you're you're in bed for like days and weeks and you don't want any animosity or anybody that feels bad or there's any grudges you want just everybody hugging and kissing at the end of the process you know a lot of dps you know that i've seen and work you know they they tend to care use a standard formula where master shot, you have to get all the coverage, then a medium shot, medium close up, close up. And especially if you're using prime lenses, you're changing lenses every time. So, you know, I've also AD'd and I'm thinking, you know, okay, how many lenses, you know, it takes three minutes to do a lens change times this times all the shots. Like what's your, I, I'm sure it changes, but do you have a general approach that you use? I do. And it, and it is it is what you just said. <laughs> so us older guys, the reason we start with the master, because it's the most amount of work, right? So we never want to redo anything because it's unprofessional to have to do a setup twice. Um, you know, I would never point the camera in the direction twice. I'm going to shoot everything out in this direction. I'm going to shoot everything out in this direction. I'm going to shoot everything out in that direction. And the reason we do that is for efficiency. Um, and, and you cannot convince me any other way. I've done this so many times that if you tell me that, well, the wardrobe doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have a wardrobe change or the actor can't remember his lines. I don't care. You figure that out. It's going to take a lot longer for me to come back to this setup because I got to remember everything and copy it. Exactly. So I, I'm, a, I'm big on efficiency and I'm big on covering the largest coverage first. So if there's a master in the scene, it's getting shot first on my jobs. 
but I'm also an editor and I'm also a director. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go over and look at the director and say, do you really need all these angles for this scene? And, and, and I'm really good at pointing them in the right direction. I'm like, you know, all right, when, you know, if it's wide coverage, cause we've got to see a lot, let's save the master for that. But when they're in this tight, beautiful, intimate dialogue, I don't want to be wide anymore. So stop your coverage here. And I'm very good at kind of helping them through that. Would you say it's normal to have more shots on the shot list than you're probably going to take? To have ones that, you know, that you want to have, but... I'll be honest with you on every single one of my big agency jobs, we use everything and have nothing left over except for maybe one or two takes of something. It is planned and producers don't want to see shots on the cutting room floor. Honestly, it's a waste of time and money. Do you prefer... Prime lens or zoom lens? Yeah. Big time prime. They're faster. You know, I'm a low budget filmmaker. And the first thing you go to is, is fast lenses. And that's how I've made my career is, is, is shooting between a one, three and a two. Good luck with that on anything else that's not super speed. We watched one time video of a pit crew, like changing tires. And Do you and your ACs like practice lens changes? Like go through, do exercises? We don't, but... Um, yeah, I'm very proud of being probably one of the most efficient cinematographers because when my guys work, it's completely at a different level than when I'm on other sets. And that's the respect they give me because they expect it. And that's what I demand. I don't say it, but they know around me because they can feel me. They, they, see, they kind of feel me getting agitated when things aren't getting done fast yeah. enough. And then when, thing is, when something is slow because I've been doing it so long, I will have to say something because if I feel it, the producer feels it and the director feels it. And, and I am the pulse of the set, you know? Yeah. Cause you know, a lot of, a lot of films I've been on, you know, the lens change is a time killer. And then if you have to recalibrate, you know, beginning filmmakers or, you know, student filmmakers, they make their schedule. They're given like five, 10 minutes per setup and you're behind schedule before you even start. What, what is a, I, I'm sure it changes all the time, but generally what's like a reasonable setup time to like first shot? So for me, I, I, I expect if I'm moving, if I'm, so if I'm coming off a truck in the morning with, with no, everything's on the, on the truck, it's, it's an hour, right? So it's an hour to come off the truck and set up. Anytime we're doing a complete camera change, it's 30 minutes is the average I take. To change the lens, like, you know, I don't even want to see it change. That's how fast it is. Like my guys have that on and off. Well, I have a quick discussion with the director. It's not minutes, it's seconds on a, on a real crew. Um, and there's no such thing as shading or there's no such thing as camera going down on a professional job because we come prepared. That camera has been serviced at that point. That camera has been prepared and rolled and tested the day before. So there's no, there's no tweaking of the camera on production. That's to me is a mistake. Yeah. Are there tips and tricks? you could share with our listeners that have helped make you more efficient over time? Yeah, absolutely. And I hate there, using there the term is. shortcuts because usually shortcuts take people take us cutting corners, but that's not what it is. Yeah. There's, there's things you can do to be smarter, to prepare for the job market. And the smarter you are, the more jobs you'll get. So you, you want to be um, ready to go. Like if, if you're, if you're like on a directory, right. And you have, you're in one of those directories where they expect you to be on set the next day. What I like to do is I like to have one camera prepped 24 seven. So I have a red camera system that's always on my bench, ready to go. There's, there's no prepping, there's no charging. The minute I finish with that camera, it's prepped for the next job. So that's one system I have ready to go all the time, meaning I'm 24 seven ready to go on your jobs anytime. Then I have other cameras that require one day prep. Like if we're shooting 35, right? So all my cameras are come in beautiful cases. They're organized or color coded. And so for my first to come in and spend a day to load mags, 
to prep the camera, set up the video assist, check the lenses, make sure they're all, you know, at the, at the distances they're supposed to. That's a day regardless. That's never going to go away. Our guys cannot come in and prepare something the day of production. That, and, if, and if anybody tells you that, then you're just asking for trouble, honestly. Give your guys the time to prepare for a big production, especially if it's coming from a rental facility because most people don't have complete packages. They might have a body or a lens, but you know, there's a few of us that have everything. We don't, we don't rent anymore because it's, it takes time away from A, your day, which not, if we're not getting paid to prep, then that's coming out of your day rate, right? So we're ready all the time. If we're on those jobs that have prep, then we're golden because my guys will have time to prepare it and return it after the shoot. I keep thinking about your efficiency with lens changes. Like, do your ACs keep the lenses like on them, you know, in their pockets? Do you keep the case right there? There's a process. And, you know, when you come on my jobs and you don't know the process, you're going to get taught pretty quick. And, and here's one of the things that I have been doing my entire career as a family man, as a father, and as a small market kind of director, I have always had the opportunity and a reason to train people on my sets. And that's why I, I, I want to do these, this, this film training, because I don't even think I can remember a job where I wasn't training, honestly. And, and it's okay because, you know, that's why we want people on our sets. When you don't have experience, you ask and you will be on our sets. And we've actually taken it to the next level too. We, we not only invited them to our sets, but we picked like exceptional cinematographers and we gave them scholarships and we said, here's $25,000. You get to live in my company, use all my equipment, but I want this film produced by this time. All those opportunities are still working in the business successful in, in LA. That's awesome. You mentioned earlier, you want to get that shot from your car, that plane coming in, but is there one shot that you've taken that you have framed in your house or on your wall because that's you got the shot or something that really? Wow. There's so many, but you know, for me, there's there's one shot on one of my end of one of my commercials for Valero. Um, the head came off Steven Spielberg's War of the World right before my job, and it was a hybrid remote head that was very very kind of specialized, and uh, and it was a complicated. It was a it was a basically um, we were tracking a person driving down a beautiful country road, and you know, client wanted to see a close-up of the person as they're driving and then kind of reveal this gorgeous country road with cows and pastures and the sun setting. So it was a beautiful sunset shot, which I love, but you only have a very short amount of time to do a sunset. So when you're tracking a vehicle on a road, A, you have to block the road, right? So now we have state troopers and all kinds of road situation and people blocking and and then you have to coordinate this ridiculous shot doing, you know, 60 miles an hour starting here and then coming out to reveal this gorgeous, you know, kind of sunset. So that that to me was a shot that is in one of my top spots and one that I always remember. But even better, the first professional job I was given that was not shooting with a camera was mounting gyro stabilized mounts on helicopters. And my first job was for Isuzu, which was out in the Badlands of Utah. And it was, it was such an amazing experience because I'm going to tell you about this opportunity that I had. 
with people I've never met. And I went out there with a trailer and a Suburban and one guy and hooked up with this big production company from LA. And we were in like the bottom of the ocean, it looked like with these 300, 400 foot mesas. And the commercial was this guy called Joe Isuzu. I was going to ask you, was that the David Leisure, Joe Isuzu commercials? Joe Isuzu commercial, this this guy standing on the top of this mesa and the shot starts right here on his eyes. And he says, hi, I'm Joe Isuzu. And I drove this truck, this, this, I can't remember the name of it, this trooper all the way up here, right? And then the camera slowly starts to pull out and it starts to pull out and it's a oneer. It's a one shot for a 30 second commercial. And it starts on Joe's eyes and we reveal the badlands of Utah with the trooper on top of a mesa. And it was incredible. So the incredible part was they gave us a week to get the shot and we nailed it in two takes in two hours. And so we were able to wrap on day one and enjoy the rest of the week paid for on Isuzu's you know, dying. That's awesome. I, I remember that commercial. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back to conclude this episode. To our listeners, if you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating and then head over to our online store at paradoxicalfilms.com forward slash shop where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear, including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. Last of all, be sure to also follow us on Instagram at Cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. We'll be right back. We are back. I'm Howard Brand, and we are talking today with cinematographer Laszlo Thomas Nador. We talked a lot about what you've done, how you do it, how you approach the craft. Uh, what are some current projects that you're working on? Yeah, so um, something I'm very, very fond of and you know, something that I can't wait for the world to see is uh, a recent feature. It's in post right now. We shot it in October and it's supposed to be released um, probably around Halloween. A gay glam horror. Um, so, you know, my life has been crime dramas and a lot of lifestyle work. So I'm fantastic at capturing life scenarios. Aaron Dalton approached me about this project um, with one of the main actors, uh, who actually is the featured actor, Eric Swanson, in the film. And when I read this script, I, I just about fell off my chair. It was just so fresh and just just something I had to do. Visually speaking, it, it was in another ballpark from my experience and from what I've ever done. And so for me, the challenge of this film was something I, I just couldn't pass on. Um, anyway, I don't want to give too much of it away because I do have, you know, I signed something. But, you know, if you can picture a bunch of amazing stage actors, men dressed up as women, carrying on dramatic roles with some pretty serious, you know, visual effects, very Disney-esque um, highly visual style. You're going to love this film. I, like I said, I can't even reference anything close to it. That That's why it's going to be so different and unique. Um, but yeah, I think you're going to laugh. You're going to cry. I think you're going to love the cinematography because we pulled off something that I've never done before, um, which is, you know, lighting on a large scale with a small crew. But um, yeah, so far so good. I'm, from what I'm hearing and seeing, it's uh, two thumbs up on that one. The second project that I recently shot, which is kind of why I'm here today, which is what I really want to kind of go out with, and that is film production. So I just finished a 35 millimeter short film for a film student who just graduated 
from one of the better film programs in the country. Now I'm telling you this because when Nico approached me and sent me the script, I, I didn't realize a Nico was a graduate film student and B that, you know, the, the project would have limitations, but again, it's sometimes it's not about the money. Sometimes it's about the project and about the story. And this one was about the story. And, uh, and so Nico, you know, he loved my work. He wanted to hire me. He had the budget and, uh, the reference kind of came from Filmgate, which is a place I teach and I highly respect. They do a lot of good things for the film community. But, um, so they have, you know, a group of people they always refer to. And, and so he called me, we went through the script, we went through the budgeting. He had no problem with the first round of, of numbers. And so we came to an agreement, but then I, I thought a little closer. I thought, you know, I've been trying to get the film back, back in mainstream. And I thought, what a great opportunity for me to show the world that we could, we could incorporate film into a small budget student film production without changing a beat. So I originally had it budgeted on red. Everything was approved, right? And then I went back to Nico and I said, Nico, just add a little bit more money for the for the film and the processing and the developing and, I'll, and we can get this shot on 35 for you. Well, without a beat, you know, he, he was back to me two days later with the budget. Wait till you guys see this little project. It's about to be released. We were hoping it would make it into the Miami Film Festival, but it didn't, but it's, it's about to go out in the next few weeks. And, uh, it's just a testament to film and why you shouldn't be afraid to shoot on it because we didn't change anything for this production. I used a red crew with the same amount of people for the, with the same schedule and the exact same budget as I would have shot a digital project on. The only difference is I spent quite a bit of time with Nico going through breakdowns a lot. Like we had to budget the film and you have to do that. You have to know exactly how much every single scene is going to take so you can have the film on production day of, because if you run out, your shoot's over. Did you edit for them or did you, were you able to teach someone how to edit film or did they know? So I, I did not edit um, either of those two projects. Um, they have editors for those projects, but yeah, no, I, 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 I don't edit as many of my narratives as I would like because they kind of go on to post-production teams. But um, yeah, I've been part of several, like on Mission Park, which is now called Line of Duty, which is a big Texas production. In fact, Carrie White was my production designer on that film, and Carrie's now working on Yellowstone 1883 and 1923. Um, so I've had an opportunity to work with some money, beautiful artist, you know, but, um, Mission Park was one of the last features that I was able to edit. And there I was uh, post-production super and the colorist and the online finisher. But yeah, these days I'm just mostly editing commercials and some of my shorts. So it's just the time frame it takes to edit something is a big commitment. Like you got to stop for months and, and focus on that, you know, whereas shooting is a little different. I love prep because I can, I could be prepping a job while I'm shooting several others. So it's a little easier for me to, to kind of cycle through productions and uh, post-production I take seriously. And when I'm posting, that's all I do is just sit in that dark room and post. You mentioned earlier, you're the director and director of photography. Awesome. So I think of the publicity shots, it's always done of the directors looking into the camera. Uh, you actually are looking into the camera when, when you're directing. Yeah, I'm very lucky. And you know, Honestly, it's a very, very small group of people I've run into in my life who are director operators. We used to be called, you know, director cameraman back in the day because you were a stronger director, but you wanted to be close to your talent. And, and the reason for that is to direct your talent, the best place to be is next to the camera. You're the closest, you're, you know, the communication is there and you know what you get when you're looking through the lens. Oftentimes a director sees it, but 
he has to check with the camera guy to make sure we got it right. So yeah, huge efficiency. And just think about the budget savings. Honestly, you got one guy doing all the prep and doing all the prep at the same time, which is I'm doing my casting, I'm doing my location scouting, and I'm doing my shot breakdowns, I'm doing all my breakdowns. And it's it's kind of part of I feel the responsibility of the leaders, you know, but it is a large volume of work to manhandle per project. And that's why I don't do it for every project. It is a lot of work. You've gone from film to digital. Have you started working with drones? So, you know, because I started off at a very high level of aerial photography with West Cam and shooting really nice gyro stabilized footage. Um, I never really got my hands on a drone. I've always had friends and family who have one handy. And so, and because of the level of quality that I'm always at, you know, some of my drones, they can't be the quality that people are buying, you know, online. Like, like we have to kind of put reds on our drones and, you know, we kind of have to outfit them a little bit more than what most people shoot. So on my low budget projects, I don't mind, you know, Inspire or something, you know, what's popular these days. But on my bigger budget productions, I would never pull out one of those cameras for quality. The thought of putting a red on a drone scares the you know what's out of me because no matter how secure you put it on and everything I'm like what if a bird hits it and you're like ugh, it gives me the willies yeah welcome to the komodo <laughs> <laughs> honestly like they needed to come out with something small and inexpensive to help people that are worried about those things but you know we don't we don't drop them we uh we work with people that know how to fly them and when there's warnings going off we bring them down safely before they get trashed you mentioned your dream shot that you want to get do you have a dream project that you want to do? As far as, uh, yes. And I'm in the middle of it right now. And that to me is, um, I have a solution to um, connecting filmmakers with with film workers. And that to me is, it's called the Hollywood Film Club is what we're calling it right now. And it is basically what I've been doing my entire career, which is teaching um, young artists how to be cinematographers but we're going deeper into film itself, into 1635 and hopefully 65 millimeter. Um, so my dream is to basically provide an outlet for young filmmakers who can't afford film school or maybe didn't get enough in film school. I have a son who just went through, you know, four four years of film school and he's still not ready to do what needs to be done on set. And so, and I've seen several, um, you know, students come through our productions with not really the skill sets they need to succeed out there. And so I decided to do something about it. And what I've done is I've taken all my years of experience on set and called all my producers and said, hey, if we were to continue to produce at the level we're doing, but instead of focusing on the product in front of the lens, we focused on the people behind the lens. You know, what do you guys think about that? And we put our thinking caps on and we thought about it some more and we're like, oh, it's kind of what we do every day. You know, we just just kind of just just structure it differently. And, and, and they were 100% on board. And then I started to do my research and I said, well, let me find out who else is having, like, you know, we're having some crew shortages here because, you know, we lost a lot of the work to Atlanta. But then I thought, well, how many other markets like that are suffering in the country? And I found that a lot are, almost most of them, except for the main markets. It's hard finding quality craftsmen that know how to work on film cameras or to shoot on film, operate on film. And so after a couple of years of research, I threw a plan together and got it um, 
kind of blessed by the county. They gave me a little bit of help to start the program. And then I started to reach out to, you know, everybody that I knew in the business that could support it. And, uh, and here we are about to start probably the one of the most, I don't even know how to phrase it, but I think it's probably going to be the most successful, effective uh, training programs where we're actually going to be producing content for clients. So it's win-win. Clients are getting a higher quality of production. And then um, basically the members and the students that are coming to those productions are going to walk away with, you know, full hands-on training. And if you do that repeatedly with us as a, as a crew, then guess what? Within a year, you'll probably be ready to go have your own productions or maybe less. It depends on what you're looking for and what level you're at, you know? But um, yeah, I mean, for me, that is like my number one goal right now. In addition to continuing to shoot, um, you know, narrative, I've got a hopefully a Christmas film coming in later this, uh, this summer that we'd like to get ready for the fall. And then, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's your, your, your typical schedule, which is you don't really know what you're working on until you get the call. Right. And so what I like to do is, you know, I like to have two, three projects kind of brewing cause they don't all land at the same time, you know? And so between the three of them, you're normally going to get one or two of them. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a struggle, honestly. I mean, you know, we have to self-market. We have to kind of, you know, try to do what we can to stay competitive and stay kind of, um, you know, at the at the top of people's lists when it comes to hiring. You said something really interesting a minute ago. You mentioned that there's a crew shortage here. I interpret that as, well, if there's a crew shortage, that means that there's work out there that are looking for crews. So probably more work down here than people realize. I wish I could put a finger on the on the reasons. I I don't because I don't work in all of the different you know genres. But you know, for me, the areas that we're lacking on is camera assistance because now most people that start in camera want to shoot. You know, the reason why you're getting interested in cinematography is because you can buy a camera, you can start practicing, and so the art of supporting the camera department is unless unless you're you know an AC who works out of rental houses or gets those calls from out of town productions that you have to prep gear, it's kind of hard finding full-time work, you know? And so I feel what's happened is a lot of, a lot of people have gone in-house where they kind of have their own systems and they're kind of doing their own camera work and, you know, pulling their own focus and getting friends and family to help out. But we're seeing the quality. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of mediocre out there. And I, I, I remember growing up and everything was wow. When I, when I would go, you know, watch television commercials, it was like, wow, that's great. Let me, let me work on that. Or let me try to make that better. Right. Honestly, now I look at a commercial, I don't even, I don't even make it through 10 seconds. I got to turn it. It's just complete garbage that I'm seeing right now. And that's terrible. Like we're supposed to progress. Right. And I feel like production quality has degressed in the last 10 years. I've noticed that during the Super Bowl commercials are not what they used to be. Another important thing you mentioned is getting away from like the apprenticeship aspect, you know, and whether, you know, digital cameras have made that easier or emerging filmmakers are like, I'm just going to shoot on my phone. Yeah, you totally nailed it on the head. And, and you know, you can't blame technology. You know, we've always kind of been a, a culture of 
gadgets and people love to be advanced, but sometimes it doesn't work for everything. And that's why I say, yeah, there's lots of ways to shoot something, but, you know, find out what you're shooting and what you're shooting it for. And then, you know, make educated decisions. They have cameras for all kinds of formats, you know, but, you know, you don't pull a DSL out, out to shoot something for a big screen. You know, you're not going to pull a, a 35 millimeter camera out to shoot something for social. You kind of have to know your drawers in the toolbox, right? And so all we're saying is if you're going to if you're going to work in the camera department, if you're going to be a cinematographer or director of photography, you kind of have to know, you either have to know all the cameras or find a camera that shoots all the formats. And the only camera that shoots all the formats is film at this point, because you can go back to the scanner and rescan your negative to be whatever format is in, is in, you know, is popular that year. We're up to 8K right now. And I just finished watching Darren Aronofsky's first film called Pi basically projected on IMAX shot on 16 so yeah go do the math film is great but there's always story you know you see them pop up and maybe I don't want to say fear mongering but you know they don't make film anymore or you know there's only limited amounts of film or they only make film for Spielberg Tarantino and Scorsese and Coppola if somebody wants to start learning and working with film aside from reaching out to you uh, where can they go? Well, you don't have a lot of options, unfortunately. I've done the research and you have to either be part of an expensive union. You can be part of the American, you know, cinematography society. There are small groups training, but um, I feel that we need a bigger outlet for our indie filmmakers because I've always been independent. I, I, you know, the studios and the unions have probably a pretty good handle on teaching their, their members, but the indie market does not. And, and yeah, I've, I've, I've taken a couple of years to study some of the biggest film programs in the country. And I was disappointed by what they're doing with their film cameras. Yeah. I know, uh, I think Kodak in Atlanta does a lot of workshops and, you know, makes opportunities for film. You touched on this a little bit. So, you know, you meet an 18-year-old graduate in high school, wants to be a cinematographer. What do you tell them? Well, I would say buy a camera and, uh, you know, and start because it's just, it's just a matter of time before you learn how to basically, you know, do the things you need to do. I mean, we all start somewhere, right? And, and none of us are really geniuses or we, we do anything extraordinary. You know, I, I look at my position like a plumber, right? If I've been plumbing pipes for 25 years, man, I'm going to be fast and furious and probably pretty nice with my pipe work, right? So just, just stick with the programs. Don't jump around. You know, if, if you're going to be a DP, then just shoot or, you know, start in the AC department, you know, first learn how to support your, your camera department, learn all the things that an assistant camera person needs to know, because that'll help you be a stronger cinematographer and know your gear and you know how to take it apart and put it yeah. back together again, you know, and not just your camera, but every camera that it gets rented out there. Yeah. And, and I would even say to them, you know, don't dismiss doing the slate because when you're doing the slate, you know exactly what's going on. You know what scene is on, you know where the shot is, you know what's being done. And I've seen a lot of young filmmakers who went to film school who just can't do basic things like that. So they, it seems like they want to get from here to there, but don't know how much work it, it really takes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And all it requires is just spending a little bit more time on, on a set where that's practice um, because it's not lost. I mean, if you if you look at the amount of films that were shot this year, that there's still a pretty hefty amount of film being shot. And until it's dead, we have to we have to all know how to use it, you know, as a responsible, you know, motion picture artist. 
you tell your director if they call you tomorrow that you don't have any experience shooting on film. I mean, you know, it's still a format and you have to learn how to use it or you got to know someone to call in when you get that call, right? So all we're trying to do is just teach a few more people in our in our communities, A, all you know, everything you want to know about it. And then, you know, hopefully there's some people out there just need a little bit of sharpening or just a little bit of time on a camera system that they haven't had a chance to work on or something like that. Are film magazines still limited to about 11 minutes or... It really depends on the format and, you know, um, so yeah, so for 16, yeah, we're, we're still about 11. Uh, when you move over to 35, depending on how many pin registrations we have pulling down your film, it, it varies. So, but yeah, you know, that's, again, it's like when you're shooting film, you, that's not even a consideration. Trust me. It's like when you get to that level, you just want to be able to do it right on film. And, and you, when you go into a film production, you're going to have the budget because you wouldn't get approved for a film production unless the producer knew how much film you were going to shoot and, you know, and how much you're going to spend on it. So again, going back to the basic steps of planning, right? Preparation, making sure that you break everything down so that you have, can have educated conversations with your department heads and your producers about everything because it's all about logistics and reality, right? And then there's, the, there's art. There's the art, art about it too. But at the end of the day, the art happens when you get there with all the proper preparation. The art should be the last thing, you know, it's, 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 it's what's natural to all of us, but getting there with all the tools and all the people to make sure it gets done on time within the budget uh, is, is one of the main goals of my day, you know, because I wouldn't get hired again if, if I weren't able to, you know, finish things on time and on budget. One last question. Where can our listeners find you either on social media or see your work and uh, get in touch with you if you're open to it. Yeah, no, please reach out. I'm an open book to anybody that needs information or just wants to, you know, bounce something off me. Um, you could reach me on my Instagram is probably the best place. I do have a website, laszlorain.com. It's L-A-S-Z-L-O-R-A-I-N.com. And then you can follow me on Instagram, on LinkedIn. I'm at Laszlo Thomas Nador. And uh, yeah, um, I'm published, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm here to share whatever I can with whoever wants to listen. It's awesome. This has been great. Really informative. You know, I love, love hearing about your passion for, for film, holding on to it. You know, it is a digital world, but there's something to be said about things that have been around for over a hundred years. Your commitment to educating emerging filmmakers. Uh, you know, it's been a pleasure having you on a podcast. We would welcome you back on a podcast in the future, anytime. And uh, we're excited to see your work. Thank you so much for inviting me and for listening to me. And I hope I've shared uh, some valuable information for you guys to, to take and uh, do something positive with, because all it requires is effort and step and repeat, step and repeat. This has been great. Thanks again, Lazo. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette San, along with associate producer Victor Ferreira and executive producer Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website at www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you can send any comments, suggestions, or feedback for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to join us for our next episode where we will continue to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast. This is the Cinema Pathway podcast. We'll see you next time. Lights out.